This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hi, hello, everybody. I hope you're doing well this beautiful evening or day or whatever. I'm your host, Ray Harkins. We are talking independent music here on 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I feel like I always need to mention the name of the podcast because, you know, if you accidentally downloaded this, you don't know what's happening. But I'll tell you what's happening. It is talking to people involved in independent music. If that's, you know, playing in bands, that's cool. If it's like behind the scenes stuff, that's cool too. Or if it's like taking the the beautiful principles, the DIY ethics and backbone of this scene and applying it to other areas of creative efforts, that's what we do here too. We do a lot of it because, you know, I'll be honest, there are a lot of other podcasts out there that are doing what we are doing and that's cool and I love that. But uh, I always want to make sure that I'm kind of differentiating myself in a way because, you know, you're, you're going to want to have a different twist on these things. You don't want to just have... Oh, cool. Another interview podcast. Great. Real exciting. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's me thinking out loud here. And the guest this week is Dan Butler from a band called Loom, L-U-M-E. They just released a record called Rung Out on Equal Vision Records. A very, very good record. If you're looking for <clears throat> sort of, I, I don't want to use the words post-hardcore, but, you know, it got, got elements of bands like Shiner, where it's like, uh, yeah, it's like rock, but I don't know. It's just really, really good. I need you to listen to it um, in order to get the uh, context of the conversation. Because we uh, we definitely go to a lot of serious places because, uh, you know, he and his bandmates have experienced, unfortunately, a lot of tragedy. But uh, that tragedy is now funneled into art, and that is always the best way to process these things, right? And maybe with the help of professionals and family and friends and other other ways. But I always enjoy when you get this this really transcendent piece of art out of tragedy. And so, um, yeah, that's uh, that's what we got today. I need to tell you about Rockabilia.com because if you are ordering band merch online from anywhere else, you're probably not doing it right. Actually, I know you're not doing it right. And I want to give you 15% off your first order using the code PC Jabberjaw. Please do that. They've got great stuff from, it's like a half a million items from bands all across so many different spectrums. You need to be doing it because it's officially licensed. So the bands get paid. They pay the royalties on time. Their customer service is top notch. Their shipping is spectacular. And they've been supporting this particular show for a long time now. And I can't thank them enough for that. It's awesome. So PC Jabberjaw, 15% off your first order and enjoy whatever band merch you decide to purchase because they got a lot of it, okay? I love you, Rockabilia. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm I, we're in the swing of it, man. Summertime. It's hitting here. Going on vacation in a couple weeks. Doing a lot of camps with the kid and stuff like that. And um, I, this is something I'm noticing. And tell, tell me. You, you can tell me. We're, we're just talking to each other. So as I grow older, you know, you get to know more people, you have a lot of acquaintances and a lot of friends, but I think something about being an adult is weirdly isolating because you, everyone's in their own separate worlds and they try to, you know, spend time with one another, but like, there's just a shortage of time as you grow older because you're, you're pulled in a million different directions. You have a lot of different obligations, whether it's family, job, all this other stuff. And so I find it like, especially me, like I, I work from home primarily 
and I don't, you know, I mix it up a lot of, with a lot of people on the internet all day and do emails and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, I, I think that's the thing that I think about the most as I grow older, where it's like, you have to be more deliberate with the time that you spend you got to schedule it and you got to do all this stuff. And it's, uh, it's gratifying because the time that you do spend is like, oh yeah, like this feels good. <laughs> you know, this feels, this feels nice grabbing lunch with a friend. This feels nice grabbing coffee rather than, you know, all of the, uh, massive amount of time that you have as a teenager or in your early twenties where you have nothing but time, you know? So it's, it, it's interesting that, and I'm not saying one is better than the other because, you know, I would rather spend very focused, intentional time rather than just filling time. You know what I'm saying? Um, but it, like I said, the, the flip side of that is the fact that you might be a little lonelier as you get older and then you need to, and if you're not putting forth the effort of connecting with people, then I think those, that's when you kind of fall into a pattern of just being like, you know, sticking to yourself and just doing your own thing and really not including other people. So I don't want you to do that. And I promise I'm not doing that, but just, just the thought ping ponging around, ping ponging, ping ponging around in my head. So, uh, Dan Butler, like I said, he plays in a band called Loom. We talk about, uh, a bunch of cool stuff. They've been doing the DIY thing for quite some time. This equal vision debut has, uh, you know, been their first real kind of outing into the world, even though they've done a bunch of other cool stuff. And we talk about it. <clears throat> we also talk about Sugar Ray, the band a lot. Well, not a lot, but like maybe, you know, good 10 minutes there. It's pretty funny. So that's what we got. And, uh, I will talk to you after the episode is over. Okay. said when we tried to connect last week where you got the random text out of nowhere from your your label person at equal vision being like hey did you meet ray harkins at beat kitchen a couple years ago <laughs> and you were like devoid of context you're like yeah i did but why is that coming across my my phone yeah i was like uh yes <laughs> what why yeah, yes question mark the uh yeah it just like i it, and I'm sure this has happened to you where it's like, you know, you're in a certain circumstance and, you know, you don't anticipate, it's not like you walk into rooms being like, dude, people are going to know my shit, bro. Like people, people are going to know exactly who I am and why I'm walking in this room or whatever. But like when I had that interaction with, you know, you and I think it was one, if not two of the other fellow bandmates, correct? Or no? Uh, yeah, I want to say that at least Dylan, our bass player, was probably sitting there with me. Yes, but yes. <laughs> and so, but yeah, just like I, I, it was such a a, a fun uh, happenstance. Not only because you know you guys were incredibly nice and complimentary to you know the band I played in, but you were like it, it was just one of those things where it was like that was the connective tissue that made us you know speak to one another, and like instances like that make me feel like the music world that we both exist in is you know relatively speaking it's tiny but like those instances make it feel even just like come on dude like this is weird like why why is this happening i'm stoked it's happening but you know like does it feel that way to you sometimes yeah i mean honestly like when you put it that way i've been noticing that i feel like i guess as we make our way around more and more 
it definitely gets smaller and smaller. And I guess to look at it through the lens of like, like, a Facebook friends, I guess, like I'll see like the mutual friends that I have with people, the list just keeps getting bigger and bigger until the point where, you know, things like that will happen. Like I ran to you, ran into you randomly at the beat kitchen. And I think it was like during riot fest when like no one should have even been at the beat kitchen anyway, Yeah, (laughs) but it was just like, just totally happenstance. But yeah, it definitely gets smaller and smaller. Like we'll, we run into people constantly like on the road and even just being in Chicago, like Chicago is such a big town, but at the end of the day, it's like super tiny and you run into people all the time. Like, you know, you'll see, you know, like Mike Kinsella or something just at the bar and just like all these people who are like these mythical, like Chicago musicians, you're like, Oh, that dude just goes to the bar. Like I do after work. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. There, and there is that sense of, um, you really feel like, especially when you are younger and you look up to certain people's, you know, musical output or artistry or whatever it is as being this thing that is, you know, light years advanced from where you are. But then when you look at it in the age spectrum where it's like, huh, that's weird. Like, you know, Matt Pryor from the get up kids is only like, you know, five years older than me. And like, but I felt like he was 170 when I was watching him play, like not because he looked old, but he just, you know, you felt like it's like, oh, these people are untouchable. Yeah, exactly. And it's like a lot of these people have, you know, been at it since I was you know, 15 years old or something. And so now that I'm approaching 30, it's just like, oh, wait, I'm like beyond the age that they were when they were making those records that I like so dearly looked up to. And so it's just like, you know, it's crazy thinking because I'm currently 28 going on 29 and a lot of these people already had like their third and fourth full lengths and stuff out by the, by the time they were my age. And so it's just like looking at it like that, you know, definitely is an interesting way to see it. And like you're saying, like running into these people on the road and just meeting them and I don't know, it just puts it all into perspective. Yeah. I I also think too, that there is something that can be said about, Um, You know, people, most people look at, you know, the rapid rise and trajectory of certain bands where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, these guys were releasing records when they were, you know, 17 and 18 years old, which, you know, we, we, like we were doing as well, but, you know, clearly they got, they got thrust into, you know, whatever, whatever small limelight exists within our scene. But, you know, those bands like definitely transcended it and were, you know, flirting with the mainstream. But then you wonder if it's like, well, I wonder if that happened to them when they were in their mid 20s, that bands could have lasted longer because people would have known what to do with it as opposed to being, you know, a young, dumb kid and, you know, being obstinate or stubborn or whatever, you know? Yeah, definitely. Like some of these bands that, you know, maybe broke up in like the early 2000s or even before that, it's like you wonder if, like you're saying, if if they had been. 25 with like a head on their shoulders and able to kind of process the decisions that they were having to make if, if it could have lasted a little longer. Cause yeah, when I think about myself, even at like 18, when a lot of these guys were making those killer records, it's like, I didn't know anything <laughs> at that age and I was just doing the most reckless shit. And you know, if I had like, luckily I wasn't touring in a band at that time, but had I been touring in a band and in, you know, crazy places like Japan or something, I might not have come back a lot. 
<laughs> That's true. The the impulse impulse control goes stronger as you get older, and you realize, like, wait a minute, that's maybe not the best idea. Oh yeah, absolutely. But then, so, but then sometimes it doesn't. Like you know, the the whole Peter Pan syndrome sinks in, and people that just want to hold on to that you know vestige of youth and are you know appro- like you know the age that you're talking about, where you know the supposed transition into you know being a responsible adult or whatever that means. Uh, is supposed to happen. They're just like, nah, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna burn this all down. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna try to try to keep rallying myself or whatever. Yeah, I've definitely uh, crossed paths with some people in bands like that that are, you know, they're like in their 30s yet they're still doing the same things that I was doing when I was like 17. I'm just like, what are, what's going on? <laughs> and it's like that. I mean, I look at it from kind of a different standpoint because like all three of us in the band, like we all have full-time jobs and everything. And so it's like, this is very much like a calculated thing for us, but there's a lot of people out there that it's definitely not that. And, you know, doing music and hopping from tour to tour is just kind of all they do. And so it's definitely a different, different way to do it. Yeah. And that actually will dovetail well into a question I was going to ask later where, and I'm sure this has been something, you know, because, you know, Loom for all intent and purposes, um, you know, this will be your debut to the world, so to speak, you know, releasing a record on equal vision, you know, largest label you've been on. And most people, I mean, you know, most people have not paid attention to the fact that, you know, you've been toiling, touring, putting out multiple releases, you know, sometimes in the same year. Um, and like you said, all of this is very uh, deliberate and calculated. And does it, uh, I guess, does it feel um, more gratifying that you're in this spot? I mean, you obviously don't know the flip side of it where it's like, you know, <laughs> everything came easy to you or whatever. But, yeah. you know, does it, I guess, does it feel, you know, whatever, more earned? Like, you know, does the perspective kind of change for you because of this, you know, the trajectory of the band? Um, I definitely feel, I guess, in a sense that we've earned it just because we we tend to learn things the hard way in this band or at least do things the hard way. So it's like, I feel like every step forward we've taken, we kind of take two steps back or at least like anything that we achieve, we kind of look back and we're just like, wow, that was actually like not the correct way to do that. <laughs> we'll do it different next time. Get, get, not to interrupt your train of thought, but like, get, give me an example. Cause I always find it interesting. Like when, you know, and, and not even so much like, oh, we shouldn't have worked with this label because this person had no idea what they're doing. Like, I'm not looking to air dirt, but like, you know, I I find those experiences instructive for people, you know, that are in bands. Um, Well, like we've, we've always just gone in, we tend to go into things. I'll use like recording as an example. Like the, the first EP that we made, we went into it being like, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna spend, you know, 1500 bucks And this is going to be just like the most killer thing that we've ever done. And we're just going to like really like write these songs really well. And we're going to drop all this money at the time, you know, 1500 bucks was like a lot of money to us. And we were just like, we're going to go in, you know, we went to Toledo and recorded, which it was great. We recorded with this guy who's a close friend of ours and we tracked the whole thing. And I just remember on the drive home from that, just being like, well, this was not the right move. And we should have spent way more time like crafting these songs. We should have done this, that, and the other thing to like make this a way better 
way better record, way better. Cause at the time we thought that that would be like our debut to the world. We were always looking at things being like, this is going to be it. And then it was like, that was not, not it. <laughs> and like the thing that came like three records later would be it in, you know, in a full like rear view mirror mode. But at the time it's just always making those decisions where we're like, okay, this is going to be the thing. And then we would just go tenfold into this thing and it would turn out like completely different than we thought which I'm using that record as an example, which I don't even think that record like exists online anymore. Cause we just like took it down. <laughs> you scrubbed it. Record, <laughs> But, uh, things like that, even, even like this, the latest rec, like rung out, like we have our reservations about it as well, but it's like, we've kind of learned to just wash our hands of things when we're done with them and just try not to, to look back on them in a negative light because there's, you know, you can always think of a better way to do something that you already did. And so we just try to take that and apply it to the next thing. You know, like our last record uh, was called perennial phase and we did it with Mayfly records and, you know, we recorded it in Chicago at Bricktop with a friend of ours and then sent it away to get mastered and all this stuff. And we were like, Oh, I wish that we would have had somebody else master it or somebody else mix it. And it's just all these different things where it's like at the end of the day, it's out and people like it. And so we just need to learn to live with it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that is interesting. The idea of uh, the string I want to pull on there is the, the notion of each thing that you do collectively as a band, you know, in your own heads is, you know, large because you, like you said, you're going through the process, you're, you know, writing the record, you're recording it, you're paying your own money for it. And then, you know, it's exciting when another person gets involved from a record label and, you know, wants to get it out and, you know, does press or whatever. All of those things feel like, you know, exciting, especially when you're experiencing them for the first time. But then, then you realize, like you said, it's like, Oh, like this isn't the thing like, and it's not to say that there's like disappointment, but there's definitely an air of like, Oh, like we, we just keep doing this <laughs> as opposed, as opposed to arriving and feeling like you're there. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Cause it's definitely like, it's a unique feeling. It's not like you're saying, it's not disappointment. It's not, it's not that you're not proud of what you did. It's just like, you don't feel as good about it as you could feel but it's like, will you ever feel as good about it as you could feel? It's kind of one of those things where you're always chasing something. And so, and that's how we've always been. It's like, we were always chasing something and then we would get that thing that we were chasing and realize like, Oh wait, this wasn't even like, this is kind of just the same as where we were already at. <laughs> like we, our last record was on Mayfly records and like, I remember getting the email from Bob at Mayfly being like, hey, we want to work with you. And the feeling of like just sheer excitement <laughs> that we all had about it was insane because he had put out records for like he had done Xerxes and he did like the first Code Orange record. And he had done like all these really cool bands like he did the first Pianos Become the Teeth record, I think. And just all these bands that had gone on to bigger labels. So we were like, oh, man, this is it. Like, this is the stepping stone label that we want. And it was a great experience working with him. But I just remember like after that initial feeling of excitement, it was just kind of the same thing that we were already doing. It was just that somebody else was in the mix. And it's like, that's kind of how every step in this band has been. It's like 
at the end of the day, it's still us just doing our thing. There's just like more people involved and there's just more, uh, ideas flying around and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's like still us pulling all the strings and we always feel like some major thing is going to change and it never really does. Sure. Sure. I mean, a lot of that arguably is based on the fact that, you know, you guys exist in a world where you are not, um, you know, you're not chasing that, that brass ring of like, all right, screw everything. Like, you know, like you said, you have jobs, like you exist in the normal world. Um, and you're not, you know, being irresponsible with the, you know, with the notion of life where it's like, you know, like I, I always, I feel, and and maybe just because I'm speaking from a a selfish perspective, because, you know, I never had that mindset myself of being like, all right, like, you know, screaming in a hardcore band is going to be like my golden ticket out of here or whatever. Like it was just something I did on top of everything else that I was doing as well, even though it was incredibly important, just like, you know, playing in looms incredibly important for you. But I always like the the advice that, you know, is commonly given now, where it's just like, you, you, you can't give yourself a plan B. You always got to like, just put it all into the creative endeavor. And it's like, well, I mean, sort of, you know, like, do you, do you feel that way? Or is that something that, that you feel a certain way as you get older about that? It's kind of, I mean, from the, from the beginning of this band, at least like not, not necessarily the beginning of me playing music, but we went into loom kind of consciously with the idea that we were going to basically build our lives around being in this band and playing music and making it so that the music didn't necessarily have to be the thing that sustained everything, but everything else we did around the band would sustain the band and help the band like in some way. And so it's like all three of us work like in the music gear industry. And so inherently our jobs are very flexible and open to us playing music because everybody in our industry is a musician. And so it's like, you know, when I need to pick up and leave to go on a three week tour, my boss is just like, yeah, man, just like tell me what the dates are and just answer your phone if I text or call you. And so it's like, that's the types of things that we've kind of tried to weave into the band. So rather than being like, Oh, this is my end all be all like I'm going to play guitar in loom and sing. And that's going to put food on the table. It's more so like, how can I kind of weave everything together and make it so that I never have to stop doing loom, but I always have a paycheck and I always have the rent paid and I'm not worried about, you know, like where, where the next rent check is going to come from type of thing. Yeah. I just, I call that practical and like, and I don't mean that in a very like, you know, dad like voice, like, no, that's a very practical thought, Dan, like way to, way to go. But (laughs) it is that like you can build your life around something to, you know, put it kind of at the center and like everything else kind of, you know, plays second fiddle to it. Um, but yeah, but it doesn't need to be that, um, that backbreaking thing to where, it feels like, you know, you're, uh, like you're never getting ahead in any aspect of your life, you know, <laughs> because it's like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta still do this. I gotta play in front of 10 people in Texas. Like that's what I'm always going to do. And it's like, well, like I, that I could- definitely know the, the people that, that do that. And they're totally content doing that where it's like, I'm going to get in the van and go on tour for two months. And then when I come home, I'm 
going to find a job, you know, like delivering pizza or I'm going to, you know, drive Uber or something. And like, that's totally a way to do it. And I know a lot of people that are like extremely successful in their bands doing that. And it's just like, we've kind of just taken like a different approach to it. And I think it's definitely resulted in a little bit slower burn for us, but I feel like it's more steady in terms of just like, you know, everything slowly rises up for us. And also like our personal lives don't (laughs) take a nosedive. Like, you know, every so often we're all just like pretty stable and everything's just kind of like rising. Yeah, sure. Sure. Steady as she goes. Um, kind of now sort of reflecting specifically on you. Um, were you born and raised in Detroit or where did you kind of come up? Uh, I was born in this town called Port Huron. That's like about roughly like an hour North of Detroit. It's like a border town with Canada. Okay. And, and I was raised even further north from there, like about 20 miles north. There's like a little kind of resort town called Lexington, Michigan. And that's originally where I'm from. And actually all three of us are from roughly the same area. We all went to the same high school. It was like graduating classes of probably like 120 people. So it's like definitely super small, just kind of like like sleepy, like summertime resort town where like in the winter, everything just shuts down completely. Got it. <laughs> is it, is that near, uh, I got, let's see, what's the, well, London, Ontario. That's like, that's across the way from Detroit, right? Sort of. Yeah. So basically if you like port in Port Huron, there's the blue water bridge, which is like one of the main border crossings into Canada. And like right across is Sarnia, Ontario. And then if you just keep driving, I think it's like the 401, you hit London and then eventually you hit Toronto and Hamilton and all that. Right. So like all of that was kind of within like two hours from my house. So growing up, it was like the first like major city I ever went to was Toronto. Like we were in Canada just kind of all the time. Like my dad's family is originally from Canada. So I remember him taking us to like where my grandmother was born and things like that. But, um, yeah, we would go there like all the time because you used to only need, I think like a birth certificate to cross the border. Yep. So my mom would take us like back to school shopping in Sarnia all the time just because like the exchange rate was really good. And so, yeah, I would go to like I remember the Canadian version of uh, of like Pacific Sunwear was called West 49. Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like getting like skate shoes and stuff for school from West 49 all the time. And yeah, we were just like always, always over there. So growing up, that was like a huge part of culture, I guess, was just kind of Canada, like permeated everything. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. It does. Uh, yeah, I think many people that don't, you know, haven't experienced that kind of border, um, you know, international border idea. It really it, it is interesting because, you know, you cross this border, you go through the whole thing like, you know, I mean, now it's, you know, clearly much more. Well, I was about to say much more strenuous, but it's like the last time, you know, I was just in Canada and like, you know, they didn't care that we were in a band and I was like shocked. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, so I wish this is what it was like in the early 2000s. But, uh, but we don't have that experience of like nothing, nothing feels different when you go to Canada. You're just like, oh yeah, it's like, like kind of different stores and yeah, know, it's all different. Much. It's just, everything's called something different. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Loonies and toonies and yeah, all that stuff. Now listen, you like vinyl. You're listening to this show, so you probably have, you know, maybe a, maybe a burgeoning vinyl collection. 
I'm straight up obsessed with vinyl. I've been collecting it since I was 15 years old, and I have never experienced a better service for buying vinyl than Sound of Vinyl. It is a new way to collect vinyl records. It's not just a record store. Of course, they have a website, and they've got over 20,000 titles to sell, but they have an amazing recommendation service that you can learn about your taste and offer personalized suggestions for records you'll love. And it works over text message. They'll text you with a vinyl offer. And if you want to buy it, all you do is say yes. Boom, they ship it out to you. It hits your doorstep in less than a week across the country. It's so, so awesome. And they have special edition records from REM, Weezer, Beach Boys, Kiss, so much fun stuff. Soundofvinyl.com slash words will give you $5 off once you sign up for their text service. And I say text, like text, you know, you're texting your friends. I have done this with multiple records. <clears throat> I got the Smashing Pumpkins Siamese Dream reissue on Double LP. I got the Killers Hot Fuss record. I love this service. And basically, they're, it's very non-intrusive. They, they hit you up on text once a day being like, yo, you want this record? And you're like, that sounds great. I would love to do that. So please, soundofvinyl.com slash words. Sign up for their text service and you get $5 off, okay? Please do that. It is awesome. Trust me, okay? Now, let's do the show. Um, and so then you were, uh, do you have brothers and sisters? Or what was the makeup of your household? I've got two older sisters, but they're both like quite a bit older than me. My closest sister is like 12 years older than I am. And then our older sister is 17 years older than I am. Oh, so. Yeah. It's a brand, yeah, so, brand new household. <laughs> yeah. So like by the time, I think by the time I was like five, both of my sisters were out of the house and, you know, in college or beyond. So like from, from the time that I was like five years old, it was almost like I was an only child, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, they were definitely around and everything and I still hang out with them all the time, but they were almost more like parental figures than sisters, at least when I was younger. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're so much older. It's like, you know, <laughs> there's, you're not going to like go hang out with them or play with them. It's like, well, they're, yeah, I'm five and they're, you know, early, early twenties. Well, yeah, it was like the, the funny thing was my oldest sister, Angie, she would like, my mom would send her grocery shopping, like to the local, like IGA and people would think that I was her baby. <laughs> and oh so, Yeah. <laughs> dirty looks from everybody in the because you know back then like that type of thing wasn't cool and so like this 17 year old like blonde girl pushing around this little blonde boy in a stroller like, <laughs> they're just like what's going on here you're like it's my little brother i'm sorry this, this looks weird for some of you so i had to explain that countless times so <laughs> that's funny uh were they uh, were they influential at all in your kind of you know path to discover you know independent music and stuff like that or was that just a a solo endeavor um somewhat i remember being like i was probably maybe 10 or 11 years old and i used to like steal cds out of my the sister that's like 12 years older than me i would steal cds out of her little like cd sleeve binder thing like in her car and i remember stealing uh the incubus like science record from there and that was like pretty sure that was the moment when i realized like what music was kind of all about because before that it was just kind of random influences but i remember getting that and then later i think i got like the make yourself record from her 
And that was kind of what started to shape the type of music that I would like end up getting into later. But she never like consciously influenced what I was listening to really other than just like playing stuff in the car. But she wasn't like super into music. She was just kind of like into whatever was in at the time. And I think that that just kind of so happened to be what was in at the time. But um, yeah, that was probably like the first first thing that either of them really showed me, whether consciously or subconsciously. Yeah, but but still, I mean, that uh, that sort of like found um, item stuff is always really interesting to me when people have that experience because, um, you know, it's it, it's not the the notion of someone like curating that experience for you, you know, being like, all right, you know, here's the clash or whatever, you know, it's like, you just look at something and you're kind of drawn to it in some weird way. And then that kind of exists. And it's, I, I, I so distinctly remember myself of like, I'm an only child. I didn't have any, you know, influence from that perspective, but I remember my dad, he was always a member of those, you know, horrible CD, you know, 12 CDs for a penny, like Columbia house and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, he randomly had like a Megadeth CD and I just remember being like, wow, I want to listen to that, even though I have no idea. And it's not like my dad was into metal. He just like got it because he had needed to get 12 CDs or whatever. And, but, but yeah, but that was, you know, in the same way that Incubus was for you, or it's just like, oh yeah, this looks interesting. Let me try this out. Yeah. That was kind of the thing. I would just like, cause I think at that time she, the cool thing was that she had her own apartment. And so like she would have me over there to essentially babysit me, but I would just be like sitting on the floor looking through her stuff essentially. And yeah, I just remember finding those CDs and I think I like basically borrowed them without asking <laughs> and then, you know, stuck them in the CD player at home. And was like, Oh man, this is what's up. Right. And kind of just like started shaping everything from there. But, uh, I also remember I had a cousin, uh, he would also babysit me. Like I, because my sisters are so much older than me, all of my like first cousins are also just a lot older than me. And so, um, I had this cousin Ronnie and he used to babysit me. And I remember being in the basement of his mom's house and we would like his way to take care of me basically was just to like have me play with Legos like on the floor. And then he would play Metallica cassettes. And I just remember like that was the first time that I ever heard anything like that. And I was probably like six or seven years old and he would be playing like, I think he would play like ride the lightning and I was just like, this is crazy sounding. Right. <laughs> and then like later I ended up getting into it, but it was just funny. Cause that was like, that's probably actually like my first, like earliest memory of listening to something and thinking that it was cool. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. Um, and you, I mean, you know, I, 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 I've only hung out with you once, but in, in this conversation here, I'm kind of, you know, uh, presuming certain things about you where, you know, you seem like a very, you know, quiet, reserved dude, definitely not the sort of person that, you know, walks into a room and like sucks out all the oxygen, good or bad, you know, like some people do that in a bad way and some people do it in a good way. Um, yeah. were you always kind of that, you know, sort of more reserved person as you went through high school and started to identify who it was that you were? Yeah. I mean, I've always been like pretty reserved. I usually, usually don't really say anything unless I have something to say type of thing. Unless provoked. Except, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unless I have like an opinion that needs to be voiced. But, uh, I mean, aside from that, like with my close friends, I probably don't keep my mouth shut, but yeah, like in, in a room where I'm, you know, just kind of walking in, it's definitely like more of an observer than anything. 
And I've, I've really kind of always been like that, just pretty reserved. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to find, you know, most people see kind of where they land on the spectrum. I think once you start to, you know, get exposed to more people in school and stuff and you, uh, it's so weird watching people kind of figure that out. You know, some people will try on, like, I always remember the, the summers between, you know, whether it's seventh, eighth, ninth grade or whatever. And then some people come back to school and they're like trying on a different person, you know, like, Hey, I'm like the Hawaiian shirt person or whatever, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's funny that you bring up like that period because I feel like that eighth grade period, my friends and I are always referencing that time frame because that's like when everybody started to kind of be into what they're into. Because I remember like trying to think like everybody would be wearing like AF like AFI shirts and stuff, at least in the the time period that I was in. But they would be, you know, wearing AFI shirts and like good Charlotte and like all this stuff. At least my group of friends and like rancid and everybody was just starting to get into that kind of thing at that time. And now it's like all of those people still, you know, listen to, you know, quote unquote alternative music. But I just feel like that's when everybody started to kind of figure out that there was this whole other world of music besides like the, you know, Led Zeppelin and ACDC that their parents were listening to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's when you really start to feel like you can you know, stake your own claim, whatever that may mean. It's like you just start to experiment and, you know, sometimes you just get completely made fun of where you're like, oh, okay. Like, I guess that band isn't cool or whatever, or like dyeing my hair a certain color isn't cool or whatever, you know, you start to get, I guess you start to get feedback at that point. (laughs) Wait a second. These frosted tips aren't cool. I thought they were fucking cool. Yeah, dude. Yeah. I I, I rode hard for that for a long time. Well, not, I didn't just frost my tips. I dyed my hair blonde. So give me, give me a break, but Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Duh. I, I guess that would have been even more quintessential Southern California if I, I just straight up died the tips like, you know, uh, whatever Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray or something like that, <laughs> which would be pretty sick. I met I met him at a Blockbuster video once that I was working and he was uh, he spent like six hundred dollars on used VHS tapes. It was hilarious. What? That's yeah. like a crazy purchase. <laughs> I, I know it was cra- It was just weird. It, it, this was like. Uh, it was definitely, you know, well after Sugar Ray had, um, you know, their time to shine. So they were a huge band. And I just remember him like <laughs> it was always funny because, like, I guess maybe sometimes the the store manager of whatever retail store like gets the heads up like, oh, my gosh, like we got a we got a VIP coming in. And I remember uh, one of my older coworkers got like assigned to him to like walk around the store and like buy VHS tapes. This was like. Blockbuster and the boss said that we had a VIP coming in. Mark McGrath would be the last person that he was talking about. <laughs> dude, for, dude, for sure, for sure. I mean, granted, like, this was Newport Beach, so, like, this is his hood, but, oh, I just, I could not, like, it, it just, it did not, like, it felt like a whirlwind. It's like he was, he was in and he was out, and I was just like, oh, my God, like, that was Mark <laughs> McGrath. That's so funny. But anyways, I, I digress. I apologize. <laughs> that just... Funny because my uh, co-worker at one point changed his Instagram handle to be Mark McGrath official and Mark McGrath like reached out to him and was actually like really pissed about it. Oh yeah, dude, I could easily see that being a real, real point of contention for him being like, no man, I'm riding this. (laughs) Yeah. That's like the only thing he has left to hang on to. So my friend changed it and now it's counting crows official. And now, (laughs) now he gets tagged in like 
all kinds of counting crows posts and he actually like responds to them as if he's counting crows. What, what did we do before the internet? I seriously, <laughs> there's so much good stuff out there. I, anytime I hear little anecdotal stories like that, it's like, Oh wow. Like only, only in this world can we experience something like that. It's a beautiful quote. The, yeah. The, the joy of getting randomly tagged and counting crows stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> So what, what, when did the kind of, you know, uh, the, the band life start to come into play? Like, did you, um, you know, did you, once you started to dive a little bit deeper than, you know, Incubus and Good Charlotte and stuff like that, um, did you, you know, the idea of playing in a band, like become pretty clear to you or was that something that was still far off in your head? Uh, well, it's funny because like, I think prior to being maybe like 10 years old or so, just the idea of even that you could actually like play music was just kind of foreign to me. <laughs> I was just like, you know, I always thought that it was something that was reserved for just, you know, rock stars and things like that. And then, uh, my parents have back in Michigan, they have this kind of like pretty tight knit friend group and it's all like hippies. Like both, both of my parents are in their like late sixties at this point. And so like their whole group of friends are all kind of like Vietnam era hippies. And we grew up kind of in like the, we were in the Catholic church when I was growing up, but we were in this really weird, like faction of Catholicism that was super liberal. And so it was like, there were all the churches and everything were like LGBT friendly and all this stuff. And I, I remember like one of my childhood friends grew up to be like a, he's like a gay pastor in the Episcopal church and things like that. So I was around this really like progressive kind of climate. And part of that was that they would just get together and hang out around bonfires and like strum on acoustic guitars and things like that. And so once we started doing that type of thing, I started realizing like, Oh, you can just pick up an acoustic guitar and play it and it'll sound cool and you can learn songs on it and play them for your friends. And it was just kind of this thing where I started to realize that you could do that type of thing. And then locally, like in Lexington, the town I grew up in, there's like a really big folk music scene. And both of my parents were also heavily into that. And it's like, neither of them can really play music, but they both really love it. And my dad always had an acoustic guitar at home, but all he could play was this song. I think it's called like Shenandoah River or something. And he would always bust it out and he could play like half of it, but he never learned how to play the rest. But he would just, uh, eventually he was like, Hey, you should learn how to play the guitar. And at first I would like hold it the wrong way. And you know, all the classic things that you do when you're just starting to play. But eventually I learned how to just play some little, goofy like noodly riffs like yankee doodle stuff like that but um we would go to this local thing that it was referred to as the coffee house but it was at it was basically at an episcopal church like in the hall and they would give you like a 15 minute time slot to just get up and play usually like three songs i remember being probably like 10 or 11 years old and watching all these people get up there and actually like perform music and that was kind of like the next level for me. I was like, Oh wow. So you can not only just play around the fire with your friends, but you can get up in front of people and play songs for them. And they'll listen like super intently and clap for you and all these things. And 
I remember there was like this moment where this really old guy, I think he was probably like 75 years old or so, was playing this like nylon string acoustic and he only knew probably like three or four chords and he was just playing these old like country western songs and I just remember sitting there being like 11 and just being like, man, all I have to do is just learn as much as that guy knows and then I can either like make up songs or learn songs and I can get up there and play in front of people. (laughs) So like I just started kind of doing that and I eventually learned how to play, you know, chords and everything. And then I went and I played at that coffee house and that was just kind of like the first thing that I ever did, like getting up in front of people and like kind of singing and playing at the same time. And then at that point, I started meeting friends in school because we were kind of at that like eighth grade kind of crossroads. And I met uh, this guy, Brandon, who's still like one of my very best friends. And uh, I just went over to his parents' house and we jammed uh, Crazy Train. (laughs) And he played drums and I played guitar. And that was the first time that I ever like played with somebody else. And that's kind of like what started it all. That that's straight up. Uh, I appreciate you laying that out because that's straight up like whimsical, like the notion, like, I mean, cause most people that have, uh, you know, an exposure to religion at an early age, especially, you know, one as, uh, you know, cloistered as Catholicism, you know, most people, especially they get attracted to the subculture that we've been attracted to immediately are like, Oh man, like I, I like I don't have anything positive to say about that, you know. Like, but the fact that you were raised with that environment, and then on top of that, also having the the sort of you know hippie vibes of being able to you know perform, like that just uh, yeah, I'm I'm stoked that you had that experience. That's really really cool to hear that all like laid out because normally it goes a much different direction where people are like, oh yeah, in order for me to get away from like my family or church or anything, I had to like find the most uh, you know I, I had to buy the first Cannibal Corpse record I could find. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely like the opposite of that. Like all of them, I'm like referring to my parents, friends, like they were all super supportive and they all had kids that were kind of like around the same age as me. So it was just kind of this whole, like, it was like a scene in and of itself, like, cause they would all have these kind of get togethers at each other's houses. And some of the other kids knew how to play music too, or they would just pick up instruments and it, you know, you'd end end up in these just kind of like jam sessions. Like I, my parents, one friend, his name's Mike McCarthy. I remember he would always just be playing acoustic guitar and he just knew all these old folk songs. And then everybody would just kind of join in on different instruments. So like when I actually like say it, it sounds insane, (laughs) but it's, uh, it was awesome. Like everybody was always just so supportive and happy about what was happening. And my parents just being like the proud kind of like doting parents that they are, they'd always be like, Oh, play, play the new song that you learned for everybody. And it would get to the point where it was like slightly embarrassing, but everybody was so supportive that it was just like, I'd play it. And that's kind of like where I learned how to, how to kind of come out of my shell and play in front of people. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Oh man, I am excited to talk to you about Kind Snacks. What do they do? They make healthy, delicious snacks crafted with high-quality, wholesome ingredients like nuts, fruits, and whole grains to keep your body and your taste buds happy. Now, you've probably seen Kind Snacks all over the place, and you might not have tried them out before, but let me be the first person to tell you, try it. They're incredible. So they have 20 Kind Snacks from seven of their unique product lines with 
their new snack pack. It has a perfect mix of kind favorites for all your daily snacking needs. Start your day with whole grains. Boom. Try the oats and honey with toasted coconut granola clusters. Or you need to snack healthy while on the go. Grab a kind dark chocolate nuts and sea salt bar. That's my own personal favorite. There are so many awesome choices. And what you can do is you can enjoy 50% off and free shipping on your first snack pack when you subscribe to it through Snack Club's Kind Monthly Snack Subscription Service. So do this, okay? Visit kindsnacks.com slash words to learn more and subscribe to the snack pack. That's kindsnacks.com slash words. Kind is the real deal. The, they, they just know what they're doing, okay? And if you're looking for a snack, look no further. Kindsnacks.com slash words, Okay. Now on with the show. I guess when did Loom come into your life? Like I, I presume that's that's much later because I know you like you guys kind of collectively moved from that general area to Chicago. Um, but you know, I, I I presume that you guys started gigging around in the uh, you know whatever D- Detroit ish area suburbs and stuff like that. Yeah. So Loom Loom didn't really start until like 2014, I think. Or we might have like started it in 2013, but we didn't play our first show until I think it was like May of 2014. And Loom was like, like I said earlier, it was just kind of like a deliberate, like, let's get three just super like-minded people together and just do the band that we want to be, like do the band that we think will get us to the levels that we want to be at. And so it was like, we had all been in bands before, you know, for years. Like I've, I've been playing in bands probably since I was like, you know, 14 years old, but it was just like, they would all get to a certain point and just kind of members would fall off the grid. And it always ended up that either just me or like me and one other person were the only people like still trying to put an effort into it. And it got really discouraging after a while. And then finally, after the last one fell apart, which the last one didn't really fall apart in a negative way. It was just kind of like, we just decided that we weren't going to do it anymore. Um, Dylan, the bass player of loom had kind of been a part of that band. And so we just had a talk basically after that band broke up and I was already living in Chicago at the time. And I kind of just laid it out for him. (laughs) And I was like, Hey, if you want to play music and if you want to like put the time and energy that is required into it, then that's cool because I want to do that too. And you can come out to Chicago and live in my spare bedroom and we will make it happen. And then, uh, his younger brother, Austin is our drummer. And so he was like, yeah, man, like, let's do it. My younger brother, Austin is down to play drums. So let's just like start working out some songs. So we ended up doing that. And Austin was actually still in high school at the time. And so I would go back to Michigan and jam with them like in their dad's basement, basically, and their grandparents' basement. And we would just write and write until we had like a pretty decent grip of songs. And then finally, Austin ended up graduating high school. He was in kind of this like accelerated program where he went for an extra year and got his associate's degree and things like that. So that's why he was there for so long. But, um, then as soon as he was done, he moved to Chicago. And then I think we played our first show within like two weeks or something of him moving to Chicago. 
Got it. Got it. Oh, that's cool. That's, uh, that's essentially like how most bands, you know, should start. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you kind of get in a room, you start hashing stuff out and it's, uh, I think there, no matter how technology and everything else becomes easier and easier for people to collaborate, I still, there, I still think there's always going to be that space in which you are getting in the room with people. And especially, you know, when it comes to guitar driven music, like, I don't, I just, I just don't see a world in which like everything gets replaced. And it's like, you know, five people, especially to start a band, you know, it's a different story once a band, you know, gets to a certain level and like, you know, every member lives all across the country or whatever, but just that initial formation of something, it's like, it, it just seems so foreign to be like, Oh, let's, let's start a band over the internet. Like when it's our first, you know, real experience with this or whatever. Yeah. We never really had like that phase where we were, like sending ideas back and forth or where like where I would write a song and then try to fit them into it or something. It was kind of like, I guess it started from just legitimately like ground zero of where a band can start. It was just like, we want to be in a band. We kind of want it to sound like this. Let's jam and like see what happens. And so we ended up writing our first song and, um, it was called built a home. It's like this pretty old song that we have. I think it's still online, but we wrote that song and we were like, okay, I think that this could be like the sound. And then we wrote like five more songs that sounded nothing like that for some reason Nice. and, and put out an EP. And then after we put that out, we were like, why did we do that? And then we basically took that EP off the internet <laughs> And then we wrote a few more songs that sounded more like the first one. And then we did the whole thing over again, basically, and then just kind of took it from there. So that's kind of what I was getting at earlier, where we do these things where we look back and we're like, why, why did we do this? Right. <laughs> that's amazing. Like how this song sounds like this, this should be how we sound. And then we just like wrote some really weird, like music that just should be like instrumental, basically. And then I tried to like put a bunch of vocals over it and it just didn't turn out well. <laughs> and so it's like, ever since then we've kind of taken the standpoint of like, all right, we want, like we aren't an instrumental band. So let's write some songs that actually have good melodies and <laughs> like are somewhat catchy in a way. And so I, I think that that's a really important thing that we've learned along the way is just how to go about things like to get the result that you want. Sure. Sure. It's something interesting I, I find as well about, you know, Loom, especially with this, this new record is like, they're um, like, you know, by the strict definition of the term, like, you know, accessible, like you don't, I, I would never listen to, you know, even my, uh, you know, punished ears. Uh, I would listen to Loom and it would, I, I, after the first listen, I was like, that's a cool record. But like, there was something else that, you know, tingled in my brain where I was like, but I, I want to listen to it again. It's not just one of those records where it's like you listen to it, you're like, okay, that was cool. And then, you know, you kind of go on a, on about your day. And it, it, it's like it's not immediately, quote unquote, you know, accessible where it's like you're hearing all of these these things that are just kind of bludgeoning you over the head to be like, all right, you got to listen to this again and again because there's all these, you know, whatever, earwigs and pop hooks or whatever. Not saying that's what you were trying to go for. But um, I'm going to guess that that is kind of how people experience your band kind of collectively over time where there, there's nothing that is um, kind of, you know, immediately grabbing someone and being like, you need to, 
you you need to listen to us immediately because we have the catchiest song ever or whatever. Like, but it's kind of that, that slow burn. Like, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing a bunch of stuff out there, but is that kind of reflective over what you've seen people kind of echo back at you? Yeah, that's definitely been, I guess the general consensus is we've always been, I mean, we've kind of tried to be, but we've always been a band that it's like hard to put your finger on like the genre that we are, I guess. Like we've gotten a lot of things, like with our last record, everybody called it shoegaze and slowcore and whatever. And like this, this record, everybody's kind of calling more like a post hardcore record. And I think that those terms are just kind of like catch all because we, when we go into it, we're just trying to like, I mean, it's cliche, but we're just trying to make the music that we want to listen to. And so it's like, we listen to a lot of different types of music. And so, you know, I, I listen to a lot of kind of heavy, like post rock kind of music. And then, you know, the other guys listen to their own thing. And so like all of that kind of gets melded together into, into what it is. But the bottom line, at least with, with the record rung out is that we wanted everything to be, um, I guess catchy is probably not the right word, but we just wanted it to be like you're saying, at least like slightly accessible. Whereas some of our other music is like, you're going on a journey and we're like not letting you go until it's over. Right. Yeah. That <laughs> makes sense. Record, this record was more like, let's write 10, like just good songs. And so we took a much different approach. Like our last record, our last record was written over the course of like only like two months. Like it was written and recorded like within two months. Cause basically Bob from Mayfly emailed us and was like, Hey, I want to put out a record. And we were like, cool. Uh, could we put out a 10 inch? And he was like, no, nah, we should do a 12 inch. And we essentially lied to him and told him that we had enough songs for a 12 inch when we didn't. And so then we just like, buried ourselves in our practice space and wrote this like 34 minute 12 inch that was kind of like once you drop the needle it's just on and like every song flows into the next one it was like this super like cohesive piece but then after the fact we were like well you can't really listen to that on like a playlist or anything because you're just going to be dropped into like the middle of nowhere and so with this record we took like the exact opposite approach and we're like, let's just write, you know, 10 songs that can stand up on their own and stand up as a record. And so we did that. And I think that the boat kind of swayed like further to that side than we wanted it to. But it's like you live and you learn. But I think, you know, it's definitely 10 good songs. It's just not like the cohesive record that the last one was. But also the last one didn't have the 10 good songs that this one has. You know, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. Yeah, sure. No, that makes sense. It's cool that you're able to kind of swing both ways where it's like, you know, here's this like dense, you know, thing that you got to, you know, cut through with a chainsaw uh, versus something that it's like, oh, no, now you've got a, you know, uh, pardon the metaphor, but like, you know, you have a piece of pizza that you can slice into. Oh, man, I'm just just making myself sick with all these. I'm sorry. I can't I can't help myself sometimes. It's kind of it's working. working. That's good. You could use it as a pull quote. (laughs) <laughs> put it put it on the uh the marketing sticker for the repress of the record yeah there you go. ray arkins from onwards the last says uh, looms like a piece of pizza <laughs> <laughs> or uh, yeah that's that's fair um but yeah i think you're definitely like you're getting at something that we think about all the time where it's like 
we're accessible in this weird way because I definitely put a lot of thought into, you know, melody and things like that. But then we're also sneaking in all kinds of other things like in the darkness, basically, you know, with like the super kind of fuzzed out parts. And then I like to do a lot of kind of atmospheric guitar and things like that. And we also like to just twist rhythms around in interesting ways. And I think it's like you're saying where you're probably not going to get all of that on the first listen. Like on the first listen, you're probably gonna be like, Oh, this is, you know, a post hardcore band and it's like pretty catchy song. But then on the second listen and third and fourth, you're going to start to notice all of the things that we really like about it (laughs) as opposed to just like, you know, that first, uh, first vibe that you catch. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and the last thing I want to handle was the, you know, the, the subject matter of, you know, this newest record is the fact that, you know, it it isn't a light subject. It's not like, oh yeah, we're going to talk about, you know, I mean, I don't know why I immediately went to like walking a dog, but clearly you're not going to sing a song about that. Or maybe you will at some point, who knows? But, uh, you know, you discussing like, you know, the fact that close friends of yours, you know, committed suicide and, you know, were lost to, uh, you know, going down the dark path of using drugs, um, you know, rather than, you know, because people can clearly, you know, read the lyrics and reflect on, you know, how, you know, the band kind of collectively process that. But, you know, you personally, like how, you know, how did you yourself kind of navigate, you know, those losses, you know, over that course of time, whether it was, you know, pouring yourself into your the relationships that still existed, you know, with with the people that were, you know, still alive and close to you. Or was it pouring yourself kind of into the art, you know, because I'm always interested when people are uh, confronted with that sort of tragedy, how, um, you know, how, how I guess that manifests it, itself in uh, the way that a person deals with it. Yeah, um, it was really, it was really weird, honestly, like, because all that stuff started happening in like late September of 2016. And I remember we were, we were kind of just starting to write this record at at that time. We had probably like half of it written, but it was all just music. Like there were no lyrics or anything yet. And I was honestly really struggling at that time to even figure out what I wanted to write about. Cause, um, I don't know. It just wasn't coming to me at all. And then in like late September, our friend Bob, he, uh, he owned this guitar store in our neighborhood that we would go to like every single day, basically like on our way to practice, we would stop in and shoot the breeze with him and check out what he had. And he was just kind of like our go-to spot for everything. And he was super solid guy. And then just one day in 2016, late September, he committed suicide and like none of us knew why. And it was just this really weird thing. And like, his shop kind of stayed open for a little while longer because his wife was running it. And it was just like this really, really sad situation. I mean, cause we were all tight with him and I don't know, it was just hard to explain now cause it's just been so long. But, um, at the time, like we were all extremely like devastated by it because it was this guy that, you know, we were seeing all the time and like collectively as a band, like we all kind of, really thought that he had his shit together and he was kind of doing this thing that we all aspire to do one day, which like we all kind of had this goal of 
you know, maybe one day opening like a guitar shop or something like that. And so we would ask him for advice and things like that. And he was always just like the happiest person, you know, and a lot of time that's how it goes with people that are like severely depressed is they have this facade of being super happy and maybe they are just like super manic at the time. But like, you know, he was always just a super cool guy to talk to. And then that happened and we were all kind of having this like crisis of just like, what's going on? Like this guy that we thought had it all together, just like threw it all away and like what could cause him to do that. And so it kind of sparked this like different train of thought in my mind. So like after that happened, I started kind of diving into that whole subject matter and I started writing, like there's a song that's specifically about him on the record that's called 31st street. And I started kind of coming up with that song around that time. And that was kind of like my way of just processing what was going on at that moment. But then in like super quick succession after that, um, this really good friend of mine from back home, his name's Corey. Um, he committed suicide at the beginning of November in 2016 And that one just like hit me like a bag of bricks, essentially. Like I remember like my best friend Dave called me when it happened. And it's that type of thing where like this person's not going to call you unless something like bad is happening. And so I just remember like seeing his name come up on my, you know, caller ID. And I was like, he knows I'm at work. Like he wouldn't be calling me unless something crazy was happening. And so I talked to him and he broke the news to me. And I just like, I was at work at the time and I basically just got up and just walked out. Like I didn't even say anything to anybody and I didn't stop walking like until I got home. And then I was just basically like paralyzed essentially for days. It felt like after that. And the crazy thing was that guy, Corey at the time, he was the owner of a record store in our hometown where we would play shows a lot. And we had a show scheduled for that weekend at his record store um, with this band from Detroit called uh, Child Bite, which they're pretty good friends of ours. And it was just crazy because it was like processing all these emotions. And then in the back of our minds, it's like, well, is this, are we still going to do this show? Like, do we still do this show? And we kind of like talked to everybody back home and everyone decided that we should do it. And so we ended up playing this show, uh, at his record store, like maybe two days after he died and like his funeral, like hadn't even happened yet. And so we were essentially like having his funeral, like at his record store at this show. And like, it was just like a super heavy experience and, like all three of us were like crying while we were playing and like everybody in there was crying and I felt bad for the band from Detroit cause like they didn't really know what was going on. And it was just like dropped into this weird vibe. But, um, the night before that, when I was coming home from Chicago to play that show, it was just my girlfriend and I we were driving home and, uh, I, not to get like crazy, uh, disturbing or anything but no get 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 disturbing man this is this is what this (laughs) this this platform is definitely uh a a opportunity in which to talk about things that you know like people just don't talk about sometimes so for sure so like 
Isn't it the way that he committed suicide was that he jumps off of an overpass on I-94 and it's the Michigan road overpass in Port Huron. And I just remember that's like literally the only way really to get into Port Huron is to like drive that stretch of road under that particular overpass. And that night we were driving home and it was, it was the day after he died and I had to drive under that overpass and like (laughs) the feeling that consumed me was like nothing else I've ever felt in my entire life. It was just like, I felt like I was in like a trance or like a coma or something for, yeah, I was driving a car at like 75 miles an hour, but I just like this feeling like washed over me. I just started like crying and I couldn't speak or anything. And after that, we went to my girlfriend's brother's house and we were just like sitting around a bonfire. And I was, I was in this crazy mood where like all I wanted to do was just see like my friends. And I was like frantically calling all of my friends and like no one was answering. And I was just like having almost like having like a panic, panic attack. Cause like I just needed to see people and I like needed to talk about what was happening and just like nobody was answering. And then in the midst of all of that, I just had this like, like razor sharp, like calmness. And all of a sudden I just like realized that this thing I had been stressing, stressing over, which was the record that we were writing. And I, you know, I didn't know what to write about. I didn't know what to do with it. I just had like this, the craziest calm feeling and being like, Oh, this is what I write about. Like I write about this feeling that I'm having right now. I write about what it feels like to lose these people. And I try to at least like tell their story in some sense, at least the best that I know how to. And it was just so weird because it, it was just like a light bulb turned on. And I was just like, Oh, this is what I'm supposed to do with this. And so moving forward, like that's that I determined that that was the plan. And then, so that whole, like the whole rest of the weekend, like we went to his funeral and it was, the whole thing was just thoroughly devastating. And then we were on our way home or no, we weren't on our way home from that, but like a couple weeks later was Thanksgiving. And so we went home for Thanksgiving and then on our way home from Thanksgiving, I got a phone call from Dylan, our bass player. And he's also somebody that wouldn't normally call me unless something was wrong. And he knew that I was driving and I don't usually like talk on the phone when I'm driving. And I answered the phone and he was basically crying to me on the phone and told me that another friend of ours, Ryan, had uh, overdosed essentially accidentally overnight and that he had passed away. And so it was just like the third, just like devastating blow in, it was like a two month span that all of that was happening. And Ryan, like I'm, I'm an acquaintance with him, but Dylan and Austin are like best friends with him. He was like their childhood best friend. So that one hit them much harder, but obviously I had like just gone through what I was going through. And so like all three of us were just completely devastated for like the last 
few months of 2016 and we just ended up like pouring that into this record and into like the subject matter of this record and so pretty much almost every song on the record deals with that in some way um there's definitely specific songs on the record that are about specific people um like there's this song unglued on the record which is like it's like the end of side a and that song is like specifically about losing Corey and like about that feeling that i got when i drove like under that overpass and just like it's it's kind of hard for me to even play that song like if i think about what it's about before we start playing it because a lot of time i can just kind of go into like autopilot when we play a show but if i if i start thinking about that song i start to get like choked up and it's hard to even play it but um and then there's a song we actually just released uh couple weeks ago called unending that's kind of written more so like from the perspective of Corey and of bob and of ryan just like kind of the mindset that they or at least to the best of my ability what i think that they could have been in before doing what they did but yeah that's really like kind of the kind of everything that happened yeah yeah no for sure i appreciate you walking through that because yeah i mean not only is it important um you know for you to memorialize these people that you know meant something to not only you but the collective uh unit that is a band because i i I really uh liked how you painted the picture of you know when you see whether or not you knew a person very well when you see other people suffering and affected by tragedy it's you know you 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 uh, you know, only a sociopath can sit there and not be moved by it, you know, and not be and and empathize and try to help these people sort through whatever, you know, grief and emotions they're going through. But then, you know, to have all these things in succession that are all hitting each individual member, um, you know, I, I can easily see where there's, there's no other way that this record could have come out, you know, like it did. Like there's, there's no way that you guys were just going to like collectively push, um, you know, not only one or two of these experiences aside, but you know, all three of them to be like, oh yeah, we'll we'll just we'll just gloss over that. It's like no, like we 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 can't do that. We have no choice at this point. I mean, even if it was just one, like that's that's you know reason enough to you know pour yourself into your art from that perspective. But I appreciate you laying it out like that. Oh yeah, I mean it it definitely permeated basically like every aspect of the record and it's crazy because like all three of those guys had their own kind of hand in what we're doing. Cause like, like Bob, the guy that owned the guitar shop, like we were talking to him about the music that we were making like every day. And he sold us some of the gear that's probably on that record. And like Corey, the, you know, the second, the second friend to pass away, he, he was honestly probably our like if, if I could say that we have fans, which I don't know if we have quote unquote fans, but he was like our number one fan. And like he, that dude would go out of his way times a million to support like DIY touring bands. I remember my old band, he, he rolled up with like, it had to have been like 50 like craft beers in like this cardboard box that had to have cost him like two or $300. And he just like rolled up and gave it to us. And then we stayed at his house. And in the morning I woke up to him bringing me like two giant bags of like Burger King breakfast or something. It was just like all these things where it's like, 
people don't just do that. And this guy was just always going above and beyond. And then he opened his own record store and venue and was just always trying to have us play like the coolest shows. And, and then Ryan was always somebody that just like really looked up to what we were doing. And it's the kind of guy that like you almost get like uncomfortable because he's flattering you so much, but he was so genuine about it. Like he would just always tell me like how much he looked up to what we were doing. And so I, I feel like this was the only proper way that we had to like truly kind of honor those guys. And that's why we, you know, the record is officially like dedicated to them. Like it's, it's in the packaging and everything. And it's, it's the type of thing that I think if Corey could see that he would like flip out because he was all about vinyl and everything in the first place. And so if he knew that the record and everything was dedicated to him, he'd be like super, uh, super excited about it. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That's awesome. Well, dude, I really appreciate this. This was uh, enjoyable, and uh, I think it will definitely, you know, put uh, put the band in a more uh, crystallized light for people who are just like, oh, yeah, I'm uh, casually interested in this. So, uh, yeah, thanks for doing this, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Okay, that was Dan, and you need to listen to his band, Loom. L-U-M-E, please. Equal Vision just released their record called Rung Out. Thank you very much, Dan, for hanging out and coming on the show. Thank you very much for Lisa and Alec and a bunch of other people who helped make this episode possible. Now, what do I have for you next week? Oh, boy, I've got a fun one. Sunny Singh from Hate56, who is the uh, the online um, video catalog. I guess that's what you would describe him as. Basically, he is a documentarian of live music across the hardcore punk spectrum and we have a super fun chat now full disclosure here he may not be the guest for next week because there's a there's an interview that's a little more timely that might have to be slotted in there but as of right now Sonny's going to be on next week and if he's not on next week then he'll be on the week after that okay full disclosure i just want you to be kept abreast of all of the situations that are going on in the show scheduling right because that's really important to anybody except me well i just made you complicit in that but Anyways, uh, regardless, it will be a great episode of what we are putting out next week, if it's sunny or if it's somebody else. And you have to try out Kind Snacks. So they make delicious, healthy snacks using whole ingredients. Go to kindsnacks.com slash words for more details. And they're the best, okay? Kindsnacks.com slash words, okay? Please do that. And um, yeah, until next week, everybody, please be safe. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.